Oh, hello there. It's me, Liel. We're still on vacation this week. I'm recording this from Cape Cod, Massachusetts, where I've just finished the third martini of the day. Okay, the fourth. Okay, not the day, the afternoon. The early afternoon, if you insist. But nonetheless, we have a very special episode for you this week. How special? Fund drive special. How is that special? Because this isn't NPR. We're not going to just talk at you until you give us money and then send you some dumb tote bag you'll stick in your closet and never use again. When we at Unorthodox do fund drives, we do them in style. So here it goes. First, let's take a moment to remember why we do this show. And maybe why you like listening to it. All of us here on the show, but I suspect also among listeners, are very different. Some of us pray three times a day, and some of us can't wait to slurp down some delicious oysters. Some of us study the Talmud, and some of us watch the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. We're Ashkenazi and Sephardi and Mizrahi. We're observant and totally non-observant. We're straight and gay and trans, and as different from each other as we could possibly humanly be. And that's exactly the point. Because here, on this show, we remind ourselves that there is still a place for all of us to come together and focus on what matters most to us, which is being Jewish, however we choose to define or practice it. We have our disagreements, and our disagreements are real and meaningful. But in the same spirit that sustained our forefathers and foremothers since, well, forever, we realize that arguments aren't what sets us apart, but what brings us together. We argue l'shem shamayim, for the sake of heaven, and we conclude our arguments not by choosing to break away from each other, but by vowing to continue and understand each other a little bit better, even if our divisions remain real and strong. That's why we Jews are commanded to pray in a minion, a group of 10, because one is too few, but a hundred is way too many. Because when you pray with 10 people every morning, you know you're going to dislike four of them and think, Another two are schmucks, but it doesn't matter. You continue to show up every day because these folks, well, they're your community and holding space with other Jews, even or especially with other Jews who think and feel so radically different from us. Well, that's not a bad definition of what is at the core of being Jewish. So now that you know why we do what we do, you should also know that doing it is hard. Every episode you enjoy takes hours and hours and hours of planning, producing, and editing, involving not just the three of us, but also Josh and Quinn and Robert and a lot of other people whose names you may not know, but whose work is so, so critical to making the unorthodox universe spin on. Which, alas, takes not just a lot of work, but also a lot of money. And every shekel you give us goes directly to making this show possible. So while we hope you'll be generous simply because you love us, we'd like to make things interesting for you. We would like to offer a reward, not some dumb tote bag. This ain't NPR, but something that you'll be really excited about. Something that's truly personal and meaningful. Something that's rooted in our shared love of all things Jewish. What is this magical reward, you ask? Two words. Mystery box. Each of us, Mark and Stephanie and I, are curating a special mystery gift box valued at up to $250. 
Now, I know Stephanie and Mark already told you about their silly boxes, but honestly, I am going to do better because my box isn't just going to have corduroy or cool little pins or anything sweet and fluffy like that. Heck, my box may not even be legal in 32 states. Maybe it will have some moonshine that I brewed myself in the tub. Maybe it will have some 19th century treaties on the Talmud that will rock your world. And maybe, just maybe, it will contain some delicious morsel from my absolute favorite nation on earth, the child rape capital of the world, delightful and beloved Belgium. I promise you, it will be a box you won't want to miss, and one that will keep you entertained and engaged from Tishrei until at least next Tammuz. So don't tarry. Go to tabletm, that's T-A-B-L-E-T-M dot A-G slash mystery box to make your contribution today. And if a magical mystery box isn't enough to get you to give, and if it isn't enough, you should really seek some help. But if it's not enough, I'd like to take the rest of the time we have today to remind you that while you like Unorthodox, we also produce other amazing shows. You might have already enjoyed Adventures with Dead Jews, in which Dara Horn told us why people love dead Jews while feeling much more ambivalent about the living kind. Or maybe you like Radioactive, the Father Charles Coughlin story, the story of America's first radical pundit and how he invented political talk radio while cozying up to Hitler. Or maybe, like me, you are a huge fan of Kylie Unell and her shows about observing the month of Elul or counting the Omer. We have so many great quality Jewish podcasts for you to enjoy and so many more coming very soon, including some that we know you are going to absolutely love. So please, Help us continue doing this work. That address again, T-A-B-L-E-T-M dot A-G slash mystery box to make your contribution today. So look, if you're an Unorthodox listener, you probably know that when I am not bantering with my beloved co-hosts, Stephanie and Mark, I'm hosting my own show. That's right, a room of my own. It's called Take One, and it's a daily dose of Talmudic wisdom in very short, bite-sized, fun-sized installments of 10 minutes or less. Each day, I read a page of Talmud, just like Jews around the world do. But on Take One, we do it a little bit differently. Every day, I am joined by rabbis or writers, or NBA stars, or politicians, or podcast hosts. And every day, we take one snippet from the Talmud and make this very ancient text relevant to us today. So I wanted to share one of my favorite episodes of Take One, in which I discuss nothing less than the meaning of time with novelist and tablet podcaster, the great Dara Horn. Have a listen. Hey there, and welcome back to Take One, the podcast that brings you just one mindful page of Talmud every day. And what is the Talmud mindful of today? Well, the same thing we are all mindful of every day when we pray the temple that we lost, the destroyed Bet HaMikdash in Yerushalayim. Have a listen. The Gemara asks, from where do we derive that we institute ordinances in commemoration of the temple? Rabbi Yochanan said that it is as the verse states, For I will restore health unto you, and I will heal you of your wounds, says the Lord. Because they have called you an outcast, she is Zion. There is none that seeks her. From the book of Jeremiah. 
From the fact that the verse states, there is none that seeks her, it can be learned by inference that it requires seeking, i.e. people should think of and remember the temple. That is the reason for Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai's ordinance, which strikes me as slightly too legalistic of an explanation to something that is so deeply rooted in our real daily introspection, in our daily prayer, in, in all of religious life, which is why I've decided to call on the heavy guns today. Our guest today is not just one of our greatest living novelists, also the author of a first and incredible book of nonfiction called People Love Dead Jews. She is the one and only Dara Horn. Dara, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I should say that you're also the host of a podcast called Adventures with Dead Jews, soon to debut on this year, Tablet Studio Networks. And most importantly, for our purposes here, a dedicated student of Dafyomi. So as someone who's thought a lot about a lot of things, but particularly about this issue, tell me, why do we perpetuate the memory of the temple? Why is it still so central, you know, even millennia after it's been destroyed? Yes, well, this is something I've spent many years thinking about. I have a book called Eternal Life, which is about a woman who cannot die. And the reason she cannot die is because she has taken a vow in the temple in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, and then the temple is destroyed and she can't get out of her vow. This is obviously you know, kind of a metaphor for Jewish history. But actually, my interest in this topic, I'm going to give you an example related to Sukkot, which comes from a book I wrote about 10 years ago. I wrote a book about Jewish spies during the American Civil War. It was called All Other Nights. Yes, that's about Passover, but these are all pilgrimage holidays, so it all fits together. I discovered something bizarre when I published that book, which is that when you publish a book about the Civil War, people show up to your readings in costume. Like I would do an event at Barnes and Noble and people would come like in their, you know, <laughs> Confederate uniform and their oh my. or their union uniform. And then they tell you, you know, like, oh, you know, I took on the identity of my great, 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 great grandfather, you know, Charles Ingram III in the 7th South Carolina Regiment. You know, every year I go to Gettysburg, you know, we set up our tents for four days and we fight and reenact the battle. And then, and then you know, and I'm just sitting here like, you know, nodding my head and I'm thinking like, wow, you people crazy. Mm -hmm. But then I go home and I build a sukkah in my backyard. <laughs> like, they're eating hardtack, we're eating matzah, you know, but it's kind of for the same reason. And there's sort of this thing about, I mean, there's something perverse with the Civil War stuff because you, know, you have people fighting for the Confederacy, which is, is an empire of evil. But there's something going on here about, first of all, revisiting trauma, but also trying to go back in time. There is this element of time travel that, you know, we are living mortal lives in a world that outlasts us. And this is our sort of constant quest is how do we overcome our own mortality? So, you know, in some cases, that's crazy people in Silicon Valley who are trying to figure out ways to live forever. Right. But there's an alternative to that, which is there is this way of seeing time underneath your own and accessing this past. And that is exactly what Judaism does. So there's the great 20th century Jewish historian, Yosef Chaim Yerushalmi, has this book called Zachor, right, which means remember. And one of the things he says is that he's a historian, but history is not what Jews do. What Jews do is memory. And he has this line in there where he says that for Jews, the past is not sort of just a sequence of events that have happened, but a series of situations into which one can be existentially drawn. And that is what we are doing in all Jewish practice, right? We are trying to bring ourselves back to those moments of contact with God, 
So, I mean, it's almost like, you know, you, your parents have passed away and you're visiting your childhood home or something like that. But it's much more intense than that, right? Because if that happens, you know, then eventually, you know, these memories accrue, you pass these memories on. But, you know, several generations later, like, you know, I, mean, I don't know where my great, great grandparents lived. But there is something that happens instead here where the temple is destroyed. You would think people would, quote, move on. That's not what happens, right? In, oh, God knows how many years we're going to get to Tractate Gitin, where there's a story about Yochanan ben Zakkai, right, who's the man who is mentioned as citing this practice in your passage. There's also two Yochanans, right? There's Yochanan ben Zakkai, who's from the time of the destruction of the temple. And just plain Yochanan. Yes, just plain Yochanan. Not the same person. These are not the same person. They're separated by a couple centuries, I think. But also not a coincidence that we keep hearing the same names coming up over and over again. That's part of this constant practice of reenactment that's built into Jewish life. So Yochanan ben Zakkai, is living in Jerusalem at the time of the Jewish revolt against Rome. And he sees that this revolt is doomed. He has himself smuggled out of the city of Jerusalem in a coffin and brought to the headquarters of the Roman general Vespasian. He pops out of this coffin in this guy's headquarters and says, you know, long live the emperor. Vespasian is a little weirded out to have this guy popping out of a coffin in his headquarters and says, you know, I should, first of all, what are you doing in my office? Second of all, I should have you executed for for <laughs> saying this because I'm not the emperor. Two minutes later, a messenger enters the headquarters and says, Vespasian, Nero has just died in Rome. We need you to come back to Rome to be the emperor. At this point, Vespasian turns to Yochanan ben Zakkai and says, what can I do for you? At this point, you'd think maybe he would say something like, can we save the city? Can we save the temple? Can we, you know, stop the siege? No, he says, can I build this little academy for Torah scholars in this like town outside of the city that no one's ever heard of? And Vespasian's like, sure. And that's what he does. And then Vespasian goes and becomes the emperor and sends his son Titus to destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple. But what happens is in that little town in Yavne, Yochanan ben Zakkai, recreates all of Judaism, right? Which before that is really based in the temple. So prior to this, during the time of the temple, what I think is so amazing is that, you know, the the whole practice of Judaism is very centered in this temple cult, right? With animal sacrifices and stuff like that. What is amazing to me about that is there's nothing intellectual about that, right? You know, this is not like the, you know, the way we think about Judaism as this tradition of questioning and all, and none of that is going on there. This is all about like blood and guts and animals. And this is just this constant rituals going on that are entirely physical and a lot of them are pretty bloody. What Yochanan ben Zakkai does is he takes that whole system of this like visceral connection to God that you have in the temple and he turns it into a virtual reality system where he recreates all of these rituals in ways where everything that we do now is a commemoration of what we did in the temple. So we see this on, I mean, if you've been following along with Dafi, I mean, you see this like in every single Daf. It's like, what are we doing? You know, why, why do we call the afternoon prayer service Mincha? Mincha doesn't mean afternoon prayer service. It means grain offering because that's when they offer the grain in the temple. So it's like everything that we're doing is sort of like a stand-in for these temple practices. And what I think is amazing about this is you see how Yochanan ben Zakkai had himself smuggled out of the city in a coffin. Yochanan ben Zakkai faked his own death so that Judaism could survive this cataclysm. And actually, Judaism faked its own death so it could survive this cataclysm. <laughs> right? The temple is destroyed. But then, you know, it turns out that this death was just faked. And then everything is sort of, you know, everything is kept in place and revived. And the fact that, you know, I today... 2,000 years later, I'm still practicing these rituals like that I'm waving around a lulav. I mean, this is absurd. 
right? Like nobody else's. I mean, there, there are obviously there are many cultures that are long lasting, but like with this kind of rupture and that it still is recreated. I mean, this is time travel. You know, this is a way of sort of, you know, achieving a kind of eternal life where there's this, you're able to go back to that moment of being in your parents' house, right? You know, before there was this separation, right? It's this intimacy with God. And these reenactments allow us to sort of go back to that moment and to not just go back to that moment, but to go back to that moment as mature adults, right? Not as people who are just like, you know, somebody told me there was this book that said I had to sacrifice these goats. So here right. I am sacrificing these goats. Now, going back to that as an, as an adult and saying, well, there's this book that told me to sacrifice these goats. What does that mean? Why did, you know, my parent tell me to sacrifice these goats? Let's talk about that. You know, what is the meaning of that thing that my parent gave to me? How do I bring it into my life now? And isn't that the ultimate, the ability to go back, you know, to your parents' rec room, but this time as an adult with all the insight. Dara Horn, thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you for having me. And so, J. Crew, we have come to the end of the journey. We will be back in two weeks with an all-new, all-singing, all-talking, all-dancing episode of Unorthodox. But as we count the days to see each other again, here is the most important thing you need to remember. For every $100 you donate, you get a chance at the mystery box. Mystery boxes that Mark, Stephanie, and I are each curating. So go to tabletm.ag slash mysterybox to make your donation. And if you know what you are doing, you will select from the drop-down menu the name Liel for a chance to get a truly epic box. Until then, shalom, friends. Shalom, friends.